Are there any uh, fans of Brene Brown out there? Okay, I see quite a few hands. Very good. Uh, for the uninitiated, she is a research professor of social work at the University of Houston, and she spent the last two decades studying courage, vulnerability, shame, and empathy. She's the author of six number one New York Times bestsellers. Uh, she hosts the Unlocking Us and the Dare to Lead um, podcasts. And her TED Talk on the power of vulnerability is one of the top five most viewed TED Talks in the world. That's pretty impressive, given the caliber of people who do TED Talks. Over the years, I've preached uh, three previous sermons about three of her uh, earlier books, the, the Gifts of Imperfection, Rising Strong, and braving the wilderness. And she's previously distilled, you know, kind of like she has this growing number of books. And she said, if I had to distill it all down to three things, it would be this, the following three themes that, you know, it's kind of like all preachers really just have one sermon. I'm not going to tell you what mine is, but you can see if you figured it out, but th this is hers. Be you, all of you, all of who you are, be you, all of you, whatever you're doing, be all in. Really do it. Be all in. And then finally, fall. Get up and try again, because we're all going to fall. Even if we're all in, even for all of you, you're going to fall, but get up and try again. Her latest book is titled Atlas of the Heart, Mapping Meaningful Connection in the Language of Human Experience. It's also been made into a five-episode uh, television series that's uh, streaming on HBO. I recommend a lot of books to you over the course of the year, but I do think this book is uh, kind of stands above uh, some of the rest. Indeed, I liked it enough. I put it on my top 10 best books that I read in 2021. You know, I read a lot of books, and this was definitely in the top 10 of 2021. It's not only inspirational and well-written, it really has a beautiful graphic design. It's almost like a very useful, beautiful coffee table book. Uh, it's also organized in a really helpful way that doesn't just kind of go through the emotions in order, it clusters them so you can kind of, uh, they mutually illuminate each other. Uh, the, audible, the audible version is also really excellent. It's read, the audiobook is read by uh, Brene her, uh, herself, and they even give, gave her permission to kind of go off script, so she kind of riffs and adds to some pieces, so that's kind of a neat thing about the, the audiobook. Now, some of you may recall this may feel like deja vu, because I did preach a sermon back in June on this book that some of you may remember, but uh, as one of my colleagues said, there might be a sermon on every page of this book. Uh, so this morning fulfills my promise I made this summer to um, preach a sequel uh, to that first sermon. So let me begin, let me just briefly revisit the question of why do we even need an atlas of the heart? Why do we need a map to guide us around our feelings? What do we gain by spending time expanding and refining our emotional vocabulary and our uh, human emotional intelligence? Surveys show that the average number of, of emotions most people can name is three. Now, you may can name more than that, but most people, they can only name three emotions. Mad, sad, glad. That's about all me, most people have, happy, sad, angry. Far beyond those basic three emotions, though, uh, Brown's book is a guide to 87 essential emotions, and it's usefully organized into 13 clusters or categories. But actually, researchers have identified at least 150 emotions. So even with that 87, that's more than halfway, but there's still a whole lot more to talk about. And as the philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein said, the limit of my language means the limit of my world that there really are sometimes things we can't see until we can actually 
name it. Having a larger emotional vocabulary expands and deepens our experience of ourselves, our experience of one another, our experience of this world. A technical term for this capability is emotional granularity. How granular can you get with what you're describing? And numerous studies have also shown that having a limited emotional vocabulary, the problem is that it makes it difficult to communicate our needs and to get the support that we need from others. In contrast, if we expand and nuance our emotional vocabulary, it's strongly correlated with both greater emotional regularity, just kind of naming what your emotions are helps regulate them, and it also helps contribute to psychosocial well-being because you're sort of better understanding yourself and others. There really is power in accurate naming. As the psychoanalyst Carl Jung said, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will rule your life and you will call it fate. Did you get that? Until you become, the problem with the unconscious is that it's unconscious, right? And until you become more conscious of it, it will rule your life and you'll just be, oh, that's just fate. But no, we can actually become more conscious of these things. And I'm not saying that increasing our emotional vocabulary will suddenly make our emotional lives easier, but it will at least begin to make our emotional lives more workable. As the saying goes, what we resist persists, but what we feel we can heal. Because when we resist stuff and don't name it and just tamp it down, that doesn't work. It just comes out in these weird ways in our life. But if we feel it, we can give ourselves the chance to begin to heal it. In June, in the prequel to the sermon, we explored three of Brown's 13 emotional clusters. We look at the places we go when things are uncertain or too much. We looked at the places we go when we compare. And we looked at the places we go with others. And that sermon is in our sermon archive online if you're interested. For this morning, we will still not come anywhere close to covering all 13 of the emotional clusters in Brown's Atlas of the Heart, but I'm going to take us briefly through four more. Uh, we'll begin with two of the difficult ones, places, when, places we go when things don't go as planned, and places we go when we're hurting. And then we'll turn to two more pleasant ones, places we go when we search for connection, and places we go when the heart opens. Let's start with where we go when things don't go as planned, and that includes boredom, disappointment, expectations, regret, discouragement, resignation, and frustration. Can I get a shout out from anyone that feels like the last few years haven't gone as planned? Does this, does this, does this seem relevant, right? From presidential politics to the pandemic to January 6th and beyond, things have not gone as planned, or at least not any plans that I was privy to in advance. And that's just the beginning of a very long list uh, of things many of us wish were going differently, from climate change to racial justice to the widening wealth gap and more. In the wake of trauma upon trauma, where do we go when things don't go as planned? Brown writes, quote, there are too many people in the world today who are deciding to live with disappointment rather than risk feeling disappointment. They'll just kind of live with it rather than opening themselves up to really feeling it. Because again, what you feel, you can heal. Let's take just a second to think about that, the difference between living with disappointment and really feeling that disappointment. Sometimes the first step in moving forward is opening ourselves to fully appreciating the predicament we're in. This world has been a hard place to be lately. In some ways, it always has been. But to give ourselves the best chance of moving forward to a better future, we have to make sure we're not stuck in denial. We must open ourselves fully, heart, 
mind, body, spirit, to the full catastrophe of our situation. And as important as politics are these days, with Election Day looming on November 8th, I don't want to get lost in the overwhelming political morass of the news and neglect the interpersonal dimensions of our lives. I love that Brown also lifts up an excerpt from the author George Saunders's commencement address from a few years ago. He said, regarding the places we go when things don't go as planned, Saunders said, looking back, what I regret most in my life are failures of kindness. Failures of kindness. Those moments when another human being was there, in front of me, suffering, and I responded sensibly, reservedly, mildly. Even as we work together against the systemic oppressions, I deeply appreciate this encouragement. In the meantime, as things inevitably continue to not go as planned, how might we be kinder to ourselves, kinder to one another, and kinder to this planet? As we sit with that question of how can we be kinder, let's begin to turn our focus to the places we go when we're hurting, another place that's good for kindness. That includes anguish, hopelessness, despair, sadness, and grief. Brown writes in a line that many of us could likely use in a gigantic-sized font that we could see it every day. She writes, we need hope like we need air. We need hope like we need air. Because here's the thing. Hope is actually a function of struggle. We don't actually develop hope during the comfortable times. We develop hope through adversity and discomfort. That's when we have to work those hope muscles, right? So at this point, you sh we should all have a lot of hope, right? <laughs> so, in all seriousness, some of you have heard me quote before from the democracy activist uh, Vaclav Havel. He said, hope is not the same as joy that things are going well or a willingness to invest in enterprises that are obviously headed for early success. Hope is an ability to work for something because it is good not just because it stands a chance to succeed. Hope is a practice we can choose, and we desperately need people committed to hope to co-create the future we need for ourselves and for future generations. To that end, let me share with you one of the most useful practices I've found that really can, can give me perspective when I'm hurting and maybe finding myself a bit hopeless. If you felt like that recently, maybe this can help. It's called the five F's. I wonder if any of you uh, know this. If you are feeling scared or worried or overwhelmed or stressed, try asking yourself the five F's. Will this issue still be a big deal in five minutes? Will it still be a big deal in five hours? How about five days? How about five months? or five years, and you can go on, right? Five decades, five centuries, whatever. I've found these five Fs to be tremendously clarifying when I'm sort of hooked on something, to say, like, is this really something that's going to have rever reverberations in my life and others' life for years and months and decades, or is this going to fizzle out within hours or days? It can really give you perspective to kind of go through those iterations. Will this be a big deal in five minutes? Five hours, five days, five months, five years. Okay, so those first two emotional clusters were hard, and I, there's so much more to say about all of them, but I hope I'm giving you little insights of, of how much there is in this book. So those first two emotional clusters were hard. Life is hard sometimes, but life can also be wonderful. So let's talk a little bit about that as well. Let's turn next to the first of our two more pleasant um, clusters, places we go when we connect. 
which includes belonging, fitting in, connection, disconnection, insecurity, invisibility, and loneliness. The first quote I want to share with you feels like it deeply relates to what we're trying to do here at UUCF as a congregation seeking to build a beloved community. Brown writes, true belonging is the spiritual practice. I think that alone is probably worth unpacking, right? Belonging is a spiritual practice. It's a spiritual practice or believing in and belonging to yourself so deeply that you can share your most authentic self with the world and find sacredness, both in being a part of something and in standing alone in the wilderness. And that's another really interesting part and a big part, I think, of what we're trying to do here, being a place where all of us can show up with our full self. But I especially love that Brown's definition includes both being a part of something and also being secure enough within yourself that you can stand alone. I think that's really key. It's important to be realistic, relatedly, that even with our best efforts and our best intentions, there's no way here at UUCF that we can be all things to all people. We try, but we're, we're never going to be that. It's impossible. But we can do our best to co-create a place here where each of us can bring all of us that already fits as well as all of us that doesn't yet fit, that still may be a voice crying in the wilderness. And our hope is that being here can give you permission to embrace and give voice to those still estranged parts of yourself. I sometimes think of this, some of you may know, I think it was uh, the psychologist Carl Rogers used to talk about UCPR, unconditional positive regard, right? That that's kind of what we desperately need from our parents or our child givers. It is what some of us never receive, right? Unconditional positive regard. To be a little, and part of what one can do in therapy, and if you need a list of therapists, glad to refer that to you. Part of what therapy can help with is what is called reparenting yourself, right? If you didn't get what you needed, you can kind of reparent yourself. But let me actually add a theological piece that isn't sometimes talked about, especially in UU circles. I would actually say unconditional positive regard deeply relates to the theological idea of grace. And that is not just a Christian term. Grace is a Jewish term. Grace is even a Buddhist term. And to me, part of what grace means is that there is nothing you can do to make me love you more, and there's nothing you can do to make me love you less. I just love you right? Do you get that? Do you get that? And it's not that there aren't consequences. It's not that there isn't conflict, but that there's a baseline of unconditional positive. There might even be boundaries that I have to draw for safety, whatever, for others, but I still love you. That's universalism, right? Unconditional positive regard. There's nothing you could actually do to make me love you more. There's nothing you can do to make me love you less. I just love you, right? Relatedly, here's another crucial point. Brown writes, because we can feel belonging only if we have the courage to share our most authentic selves with people, our sense of belonging can never be greater than our self-acceptance. That's also worth really thinking about. At least for me, that, that quote alone might be worth the price of admission. Our sense of belonging can never be greater than our level of self-acceptance. And one way to get there, um, some of you have heard me talk about Kristen Neff uh, has done a lot with mindful self-compassion, Christopher Germer as well. And she talks about taking a, a mindful self-compassion break. I'll show you how to do You can even do this along with me if you want. And you kind of put one hand on heart center and another on your gut, just offering, physically offering kindness to yourself. And there are just three big parts, three little parts of this. The first is just to say, life is hard. Just acknowledging that full catastrophe, like, wow. This is hard. I'm really suffering right now. This is unpleasant. This is you know, unsatisfactory, whatever. So just acknowledging, wow, this is hard. And then acknowledging that this happens to everyone. You're not being 
sought out and smited by the gods in particular, right? No, it's everyone suffers. It's part of the human condition, right? This is hard. Everybody hurts. And then just noting this intention, to the greatest extent available to you, may I be kind to myself in this moment. This is hard. Everybody hurts. And may I be kind to myself in this moment. You can do this really quick. And you can get to the point where just doing this or even just hand... You can, really, you can do this in public. You can do it in the grocery store. It's okay. Um, let me say one other quick piece that I think also relates to the difference between kind of what we're trying to do here, what happens in more liberal, theologically liberal religious communities versus sometimes more theologically orthodox ones. And that's what we sometimes call the difference between creed and covenant. Creedal communities, you have to start by believing correctly. You've got to believe these list of things, right? So you believe, and then we want to make sure you behave, and then you belong, right? And the thing that we do in calling ourselves a covenantal community that's about right relationship, we inverse that. And I think this deeply relates to what Brown is talking about. We say, just start by belonging. Just come on. Be a part of us, right, in all our messy big tent diversity. We start with belonging, and then you may find your behavior kind of changing because you're kind of getting called into different ways of being as your consciousness is expanding, you're widening your circle of concerns. We start with belonging, then you may kind of find your behavior changing, and then you may actually find yourself believing a few things that you kind of stumbled backward into. That's a big difference um, between those two things. Okay, finally, let's very briefly turn to places we go when the heart is open. That includes love and lovelessness, heartbreak, trust, self-trust, betrayal, defensiveness, flooding, and hurt. I'll limit myself just to sharing uh, two, uh, two quick examples. The first is, uh, I love this term. Brown writes about foreboding joy. Have you heard of that? Foreboding joy. Uh, I appreciate her naming this because it's really heightened my awareness of times when I find myself holding back. Does that ever happen to you? I'm kind of keeping my heart closed because I'm feeling a little bit apprehensive. This, this may go sideways, right? Kind of a fearful apprehension, something bad might happen. But the deep cost of this compromise is that we inhibit ourselves from experiencing joy. And I have found power in naming this. Oh, this is foreboding joy. And naming it makes me more aware of it. It makes it more workable uh, to potentially set it aside and open myself to the joy of that present moment. The other example I want to lift up of where we can go when the heart is open is the experience of tranquility. I love naming that too, looking for places of tranquility. For all the reasons of current events we named at the beginning of the sermon, tranquility may have been in far too short a supply for many of us recently, and that's fair. But that may make it more important than ever. And honestly, I'll say tranquility is one of the reasons that I meditate, is, is, is a, an opportunity. Now, of course, difficult stuff can come up with meditation, but I've also found that uh, I can really sometimes touch into tranquility. Han, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh used to say, try to sit on your meditation cushion like a businessless person. You know you have stuff to do, but when you're on your meditation cushion, try to be a businessless person. Nothing to do, nowhere to go, just sitting, and you may find eventually your heart opens. And I think this actually is a beautiful season for that. I think that, that fall is a, a time that nature is inviting us to let go. What are you being invited to let go of and, and reveal this season that you might experience some tranquility? So this has been an all-too-brief tour of Brene Brown's Atlas of the Heart. Across two sermons, we've had a chance to touch on highlights from seven of her 13 emotional clusters. So if you're curious, way more in the book. 
For now, I'll give the last words to Brene Brown on the power of increasing our emotional vocabulary. She writes, in this life, you will know and you will bear witness to incredible sorrow and anguish. It's just part of being alive, right? But you will also experience breathless love and joy. There will be boring days and exciting moments, low-grade disappointment and seething anger, right? Rage, even. Catherine talked about that in the spoken meditation. Also wonder and confusion. This being human is a lot, right? The wild and ever-changing nature of emotions and experiences, it leaves our hearts stretched-marked and strong, worn and willing. My hope, she writes, is that we will find a solid ground within us, a shore that offers safe harbor when we're feeling untethered and adrift. The more confident we are about being able to navigate that place, the more daring our adventures and the more connected we'll be able to be to ourselves and to each other. The real gift of this atlas of the heart, of learning language, practicing this work, cultivating meaningful connection, is being able to go anywhere without the fear of getting lost, because that atlas of the heart is with us wherever we go. Even when we have no idea where we are or where we're going, that atlas of the heart, it's with us. And with the right map, we can find our way back to our heart and to our truest self. In that spirit, let's rise and body your spirit. Let's sing together a hymn that's all about this wild ride of human emotions. Number 354 in your gray hymnal, we laugh, we cry.